You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Welcome to episode 47 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is presented by the Two True Freaks Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I return to my regular issue-by-issue coverage of the series with issue number 42. This one takes place in July of 1969, and our song, Spinning Wheel by Blood, Sweat, and Tears, was number two on the Billboard Hot 100 on July 12, 1969. It spent three weeks at number two and was also a crossover hit, charting on the Easy Listening chart and the R&B chart. The album it is found on, which is Blood, Sweat, and Tears' self-titled debut, would go on to win the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. I actually chose this song for a personal reason, because I've actually seen Blood, Sweat, and Tears live. It was back in... It was either 97 or 1998. Uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears in America played a show for Parents Weekend at my college, Loyola College in Maryland, which is now Loyola University, Maryland. It's uh, located in Baltimore. Blood, Sweat, and Tears opened, and while I was only familiar with this song and You Make Me So Very Happy, I went ahead and got the tickets. America was kind of boring, to be honest, but Blood, Sweat, and Tears was pretty amazing as a live act. Between the power behind the lead singer's voice and the really, really great horn section, uh, they were worth the money and not going out drinking on Sunday night, Saturday night, so I could go to a concert with my parents. If I recall correctly, though, that meant I was the sober one and could drive everybody to Denny's for late-night deli dingers. College. Anyway, the NOM f- number 42 came out on January 23rd, 1990, and was cover dated March 1990. The cover by Michael Golden shows an orange-colored helicopter against a green background. There's a rope dangling from the chopper, and on board the chopper we see guys reaching for whomever is attached to that rope, and the machine gun f- gunner firing while someone on the chopper says, We're losing him, man! We're losing him! Our story is entitled Inquiry. It's written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Sant, ink-like by Stan Drake, lettered by Phil Felix, colored by Rob Tokar, edited by Don Daly, and the editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. Near the Cambodian border in early July 1969, American infantrymen work to save one of their own, and on the splash page we see a scene very similar to the cover except from above as opposed to the sides, so that we can see what's tied to that rope and what that's not a what, but a who. A badly wounded bacon who is lying on a makeshift stretcher and screaming, Help me! Oh God, help me! They're trying to get him up, but it looks like he's stuck. As, and as Carson yells words of encouragement while trying to get the rope up, Biggs yells him to get out of the way and with a crazed look in his eyes, takes his spade and cuts the rope. We switch scenes. We are in a makeshift courtroom where Carson is testifying what happened, saying that Biggs did it on purpose. The man in charge of the inquiry asks him to tell him the details of the incident, and Carson calms down enough to explain. 
What I'm going to do here, well, is I'm actually going to just read the comic because most of the story shows the events of that day from the point of view of Carson, Martini, and Biggs himself, as well as the helicopter pilot, and they narrate everything. So here's Carson. Carson says, We had pulled Bacon almost up to the chopper door, maybe 10 or 12 feet below. We just needed to pull him out a couple more feet, just a little further, and Biggs wouldn't wait. I'll tell you, I thought he'd gone crazy or something. The others did too. It was like some sort of Chinese fire drill, everybody yelling and screaming and trying to do something, anything. Before we could react, before we could do anything, the line broke. I tried to grab hold of it, but it was gone before I could reach it, and all we could do was watch Bacon fall and listen to him scream. He kept screaming, just kept screaming the whole way down, and I'd never seen a face so scared, so angry, so betrayed in my life, and that's why I got to see this through for him. The inquiry board turns its attention to Martini, who says, Well, sir, we'd been ordered to check out a loach report of an NVA camp somewhere north and east of our base. We trucked to within 20 clicks of the reported position and hit real thick forest. Third growth, real high trees with other trees below them. Almost no underbrush. Dark, it was always dusk. I don't mind telling you, though, I was a bit concerned about that forest. If we needed help, we were going to have a tough time getting it. There was no way we were getting any air cover in there. Anyway, we were humping along, heading for the reported MVA position. The troops were kind of relaxed. We've been through this kind of thing often enough. And Bacon and Carson just kind of start talking about Biggs, and Bacon thinks he's such a wimp, and Carson's like, I don't know about that. And then Martini comes in again and says, I don't know. The lieutenant seemed all right to me. Uh Uh-huh. We kept plodding through the brush for a couple of Hours Miller was on the point. He's not the greatest troop, but he has seems he just seems to have a knack of just sort of stumbling onto things. I don't know how he does it, but he did it again. And Miller says, Lieutenant, I think you ought to take a look at this. And Martini says, I got everybody up to take cover while the lieutenant took snuck a good look. It was an NVA base camp, all right, the best equipped one I'd ever seen. Judging by the tents and the cook fires, I figured there must have been about a thousand men in the area, and they had tanks. There was no way our little platoon was going to be able to do anything against this base alone. Lieutenant didn't waste any time. He called Artie in. They must have been standing ready, just because just in a couple of minutes, all kinds of stuff started to fall into that camp. High explosive, anti-personnel, anti-tank, you name it, those Artie boys were pouring it in. And while the lieutenant just kept watching, calling corrections, keeping off all the fire on target... The NVA had to know there was someone spotting for all that fire. It was just too accurate to be random. Eventually, one of them saw us. Maybe there was a glint off the binox. Maybe a face stuck out too far, but pretty soon a VC patrol got close enough to vector, uh, close enough to us to vector in. We'd spotted them before they got too close, but it made things too hot for us to stay in the area. And then uh, they start screaming bug out and they start leaving. We were just in time. The NVA started laying mortar fire on our position. The first round hit where our RT had been. I missed the RT, but Private Bacon got hit real bad by the blast, lifted him clean off his feet. Jones, our medic, got him right away, but there, that wasn't, there wasn't all that much he could do. He gave him a shot, and he tried to stop the bleeding, but we didn't have any time. The NVA was all over the place. We had to get out of there and right away. We pulled back a little, got out from under the mortar. Bacon was worse than we thought. We hit a sucking chest wound. We all knew what that meant. Jones controlled the bleeding and stopped up the chest hole, but we all knew that if we didn't get to Bacon, get Bacon to an aid station real soon, right around then, Charlie caught up to us. The lieutenant told me about and a couple of others to stay behind and slow Charlie down. Then he had the rest of the platoon get Bacon on the stretcher we put together, pulled out, and pulled out. They needed a place where we could call a chopper and in fast. We knew it was going to be close. Charlie was right behind us. 
We did all we could pulling back slow, making Charlie earn every inch. Fortunately, the lieutenant had thought of a way to slow Charlie down even more. That Artie company had been socking it to Charlie's camp right along. The lieutenant just asked him to leave one salvo down a little further south, closer to us, and that really slowed Charlie down. That gave us some breathing room, and we used, used it just as quickly as we could. Jones kept bacon knocked out for morphine, and we, got, and we kept looking for a place to land a chopper. Some of the new guys had a little trouble with the pace. After all, they weren't used to the heat and humidity. But Lieutenant Biggs kept them going, kept us all along. About that time, we started to hear choppers overhead, above the tree cover. Now all we had to do was find a break, a place big enough for the choppers to come in through that thick triple canopy. Lieutenant finally found something, a break in the tree cover, but... Well, it looked like they weren't, they weren't able to land. So they let down lines, long ropes for us to climb up, and they hovered there, waiting. The Lieutenant and Jones tied Bacon's travois to one of the ropes. It, I was busy climbing one of the ropes myself. I wasn't in the same chopper Lieutenant was, was in. I didn't see anything else. I would like to say that Lieutenant Biggs is one of the finest, and they cut him off saying, you know, thank you. They call Biggs next, and Biggs tells his version of the story, pretty much picking up where Martini just left off. I was, it was a desperate idea to have choppers drop the ropes. I'd seen it done for airborne training and figured it was the only, cha- one, only chance we had. Of course, this was not an airborne unit, and some of my men were a little out of shape. We see Miller holding a candy bar in one hand and a rope in the other. But I figured they had the necessary incentive to do their best. Sergeant Martini and a few of the others were on the flanks, acting as a screen, waiting for Charlie to catch up. Jones and I got bacon tied in and attached to a line just as securely as we could. Then I ordered Jones to get to one of the choppers. I wasn't going to take a chance on losing him. Put on out on the flank, Charlie just about caught up to us. But the sergeant and his men took care of him quickly enough, and permanently enough that we figured we'd have time to get everyone into the helicopters. I waited for the men to catch up, and I ordered them up one of the ropes. I really didn't really pay attention to which one. I gave them a little head start. I wanted to make sure that Charlie didn't turn up until most of my men were safe in the choppers. Martini yelled at me from about halfway up, said he could see some movement down in the bush, probably more NVA. So I started up myself, used to be pretty good at gymnastics in college. I figured I could get up there fast enough to make it worth the gamble. As soon as I reached the chopper, I had everyone start pulling the rope up. This was no medevac chopper. It didn't have a winch. We had to do it ourselves. It was harder than I figured. No leverage and less room. But the men did their best, and the stretcher kept coming up until it was maybe three meters from the chopper door. That's when the line snagged. We tried everything to free it. Even had the chopper pilot swing the bird around to change the angle, and nothing worked. The NVA caught up to us. We were alone by then. The other choppers had peeled off to give us room, and we started taking all kinds of fire from the ground. Naturally, we opened up too, laying down as much as cover as we could. But, and we see the the gunner get shot, and there's more uh, there's more rounds hitting the chopper. And he says, then a round came came through the can- canopy, almost missed killing the pilot. I knew we had to do something. The pilot did, didn't have any ideas. We were stuck there, anchored by that line snagged in the tree. That line was attached to bacon. I knew I had to cut that line free. There was no other way. Biggs grabs his his spade and screams move Carson move and and with a kind of a look of horror on his face he goes to cut it and and while Carson screams Biggs no don't just as we saw at the beginning of the book and he says it broke it finally broke the pilot started to get us out of there as soon as the line was free all I could do is watch Bacon fall and fall and fall 
screaming all the way. I still hear that scream now. I'll hear it until the day I die. We next get the testimony from the helicopter pilot who says, I was flying the helicopter in question July 8th. We had come in a response call to a call from Lieutenant Biggs for an emergency pickup. First, it was a cakewalk, just keeping the chopper steady while the men climbed aboard and pulled up their wounded men. Then the ground started to pick up ground fire. Heavy ground fire. I told the other choppers to bug out. I would have told the Lieutenant Biggs to cut the line, but he saw to it himself. I got ready to get us all out of there. And as I did, as soon as that line parted, I could hear screaming even above the gunfire. I, I thank God I've never had to make a decision like that, but I tell you now, if Lieutenant Biggs hadn't cut that boy loose, we'd all be dead now. Every last one of us. Every last one. Long hours later, Biggs is cleared of any wrongdoing, and as he walks out of the building, he's confronted by Carson, who says, So it's true. You were on the line and you fumbled. Bacon was right. He paid for your mistake this time. But who's next? Me? Martini? Who? Daniels tells him to wake up and realize that he saved all of them, and Biggs mutters, I... Sure. Not not all. No. This issue begins another transition period for the narrative of the series, it seems, because the last issue saw the departure of Ice, who, while he was in the name book of the character in the way that Ed Marks was during the first year's worth of issues, was still felt like the focus of most of the last couple years' worth of, of stories. With Ice gone, it's hard to tell who will be the focus. Biggs is probably a good candidate, especially as he was introduced as a new lieutenant a while back and was more likable than Alarnik had ever been. The problem is that this seems like it's too dramatic for an issue such as this. Not that it's not a story that could or should be told, but after what was a solemn issue that involved Ice reflecting on his time, as well as Ader, whom he obviously considered one of his greatest failures, we have Biggs all of a sudden being asked to answer for what's going to become the failure that will haunt him? Yes, I realize that we're doing stories in real time here, at least at this point, but I would have eased up the throttle a little, especially when the character who died was Bacon, a character who was part of the racial tension that had been a defining story beat for quite a number of issues over the last year. Perhaps this should have been shelved for a later book and we could have had something more routine for an issue or two so that we could see what it was like for Biggs to lead the unit and without ice at his back? Their relationship during the time they were together in the book was clearly student-teacher, even though Biggs outranked Ice, and to see how Biggs worked without his mentor would have been much better. Furthermore, this takes place in July of 1969, which is when the Apollo 11 moon landing took place, and while I don't think it's necessary to insert every world event into this book, I think Doug Murray kind of missed a good opportunity here. Now, all that aside, it's an okay story and the art helps. Stan Drake isn't the best inker for Wayne Van Zandt, but to Van Zandt's credit, he gives each version of the story a different feel. On the first two pages where Carson is telling the story, you have Biggs with a crazy look in his eyes, and in one panel he's actually drooling, as if he wants to cut that rope and send Bacon to his death because, well, that's that's how he's telling the story. And that's contrasted with a relatively normal-looking group of people in the courtroom. Martini's story has a lot of jungle detail, it has a lot of moodiness, and he serves to set up the whole incident. I think that had Jeff Isherwood been inking, not Stan Drake, this would have been a lot better because some of the artwork feels a little sloppy in places. Then, Biggs' version of the story, uh, with that, Van Sant gives him a look of desperation. 
And you get the sense that his stomach flips when he realizes what he did because it had to be done. Something he carries over in Biggs' facial expressions throughout the story, especially at the end, where he sits on the stand and he says that he can still hear Bacon's screams and how he's, at the end of the book, he's hanging his head the whole time. So, I was underwhelmed a bit here. Or at least thought this could have gone slightly later in the series. Because overall, it wasn't a terrible issue or anything, but knowing that the next issue is the first one that Doug Murray didn't write, and we're roughly ten issues away from the first Punisher story, I'm starting to get a little wary about whether or not the quality of the book will actually start to decline as we get through the last of Doug Murray's issues. Granted, Chuck Dixon is the next writer on on board, and that means that we're in for some really good stuff. But the storytelling format will change, and I think before the next writing teams find their footing, it's going to be a little bumpy here and there. I'll be back in a few with historical context, letters, and ads. Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries from In Country and Pop Culture Affidavit asking you if you would like to donate to Wordplay. This is an annual trivia competition that is taking place in Charlottesville on April 22nd to support the literacy volunteers of Charlottesville Albemarle. Just as I have done for the last two years, a team of teachers from my building and I will be participating. Last year, we came in third and won coffee mugs. This year, we're going for first. But the more important thing is that we're trying to raise $500 to support this wonderful organization that helps adults who are illiterate and English language learners learn to read and write and provide them with the support and the skills they need to become further productive citizens in in our town, in our community, in our country. To donate, you can go to popcultureaffidavit.com and click the link included on the first post on the website. You can donate as much or as little as you can, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for supporting Wordplay and Literacy. Okay. I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not like an Avenger, but he's there. 
Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. July 1969 is significant when it comes to America's involvement in the Vietnam War because on July 8th we have the very first American troop withdrawal, which is 800 troops from the 9th Infantry being called home. This is the most significant event of the war this month, although you have a lot more diplomacy going on when it comes to Nixon and the United States trying to stop the war in one way or another. One significant event is that Nixon sends a letter to Hanoi telling them to settle the war and threatens an increased bombing campaign if it's not done. And we also have the establishment of the Nixon Doctrine, which was basically a foreign policy doctrine that would involve the United States continuing its police actions but relying on local ground troops and U.S. air support. It was a significant move away from the committing of ground troops that had happened during Korea and Vietnam. Nixon himself visits on July 30th, 1969. It was his only visit to Vietnam during his presidency. Also in July of 1969, but not directly involving the Vietnam War, we have July 14th, which is the start of the football war. After Honduras loses a soccer game against El Salvador, rioting breaks out in Honduras against Salvadorian migrant workers. Of the 300,000 Salvadorian workers in Honduras, tens of thousands are expelled, prompting a brief Salvadorian invasion of Honduras. The OAS works out a ceasefire on July 18th, which takes effect on July 20th. On July 18th, you also have the Chappaquiddick incident, where Ted Kennedy drives his car off a bridge on Chappaquiddick Island, Massachusetts, killing his date, Mary Jo Kopechny. This incident would become a national scandal, and Kennedy would receive a two-month suspended jail sentence when he pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. It would wind up being the biggest black mark in his political career, and is considered one of the possible reasons why he didn't run for president in 72 and 76, and also came up during his failed bid for the Democratic nomination in 1980. Kennedy would remain a senator until his death in 2009. Meanwhile, on July 20th, 1969, you have the most important event of this month, if not this year. Apollo 11 lands on the moon. The mission had lifted off from Cape Canaveral in a Saturn V rocket on July 16th with three astronauts, Neil Armstrong Edwin Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Collins was piloting the orbiter, and Armstrong and Aldrin were the landing team. Armstrong was the first out of the lunar lander and took the first historic steps onto the lunar surface. The mission would successfully return to Earth on July 24th. Here is a clip package from CBS News that features clips of Walter Cronkite anchoring both the launch of Apollo 11 as well as the landing itself. I'll post the video from YouTube to the Facebook group, of course, but here's the audio. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out 
of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. Good morning. Man is about to launch himself on a trip to the moon from uh, this Florida launch complex. Astronauts Armstrong, Collins, and Aldrin sitting there atop the great Saturn rocket in their command module. My palms are, are sweaty. That's, you are now a member of the mission launch team. <laughs> Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. What a moment. Man on the way to the moon. It seemed that the whole world uh, stopped as man uh, set out on the adventure to escape from his own planet and to set foot on a distant one. Hello there, Earthling. Hello there. 11 Houston, if that's not the Earth, we're in trouble. The lunar module cutting itself free from the command module, beginning the maneuvers which should place it on the surface of the moon. Roger, Eagle, sun dot. Roger, how does it look? Eagle has wings. Houston, you're a go for landing, over. Roger, understand, go for landing. City feet, two and a half down. We're drifting to the right a little. 30 seconds. Oh, jeez. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. We're home. <laughs> Man on the moon. Boy. <laughs> okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. There he is. There's a foot coming down the step. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. Armstrong is on the moon. Yeah, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, for thousands of years now, been man's dream to walk on the moon. Right now, after seeing it happen, knowing that it happened, it still seems like a dream. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. This certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made from the White House. Thank you, Mr. President. Honor for us to be able to participate here today. We think that you've done a magnificent job up there today, over. Thank you very much. It's been a long day. Man has landed there, and man has taken his first steps there. I wonder just what there is to add to that. If I may interject here, uh, I wasn't born when the first moon landing took place. Uh, I've always loved the space program and space travel. In fact, a couple of years ago, I drove up to the Air and Space Museum near Dulles International Airport so that I could see the space shuttle, among other things. But the space shuttle was the most important to me. And watching that video, well, I have no personal context for it, but I, I, even I got goosebumps. I personally think that it's one of those events I wish I could have seen unfold uh, as it happened. There are so very few of those in my lifetime like this that I've seen happen that weren't negative or tragic in some nature. And this 
Well, I understand why it's so important to my parents and their generation as well as to our country and our history. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to watch it here at least and and share it with you. Now moving on to letters and ads. Incoming this month, there's a letter from Chris Roth who says that um, he wants to know what happened to Griffiths from the Rangers from issue 27. Did he go back in the world? Will he be another issue? And he says that he always thought ICE was a specialist six. When he become a sergeant, when will Pig will Pig become an officer? And will you do an Air Force or Navy issue? And will ever Ed Marks ever get married? Doug replies, Griffiths did get to go home. His wounds are such as to get him out of the NOM, at least for now. Later, who knows? ICE has been a Specialist 5 all along, and a Spec 6 has two stripes under his little eagle. When Specialist troops, men who have, quote, skills, are made into NCOs, troop pushers, guys who give orders, they are often given the equivalent hard stripe rank. Thus, ICE became what we would call a buck sergeant, or an E5. Clear? As Red Mark's getting married, I don't know yet. Well, that's another story, isn't it? Daryl Lowe of Washington, D.C. says, I really enjoy your book, and I would have been a, I have been a Marvel fan for years. He says, Issue 36 disturbed me because I felt it profoundly convoluted the reality of racism in the NAM. I believe you were trying to do a story on racism, but instead violated the whole experience of a group of people, which in itself is racist. Black servicemen did experience racism in Vietnam. They are, in fact, still experiencing it in the armed forces today. In the Vietnam era, blacks made up about 11% of the United States population, yet 23% of the casualties in Vietnam were black, more than double. Blacks were fighting and dying for civil rights at home and still fought for an America that had rejected them and invalidated them. To depict the only Afro-Americans so far in your book trying to confront racism as a lazy blowhard who can't fight is an affront to all vets and all black people and a danger to younger, more impressionable readers. I don't mean to go on forever, but this is a very important issue. We are living in a society constantly bombarded with racially loaded images on TV and other media. To see them in a Marvel comic is too much. This is a danger of the regression of race relations and the miseducation of young people exacerbates the problem. Thank you for reading this letter. I hope you treat it seriously. Dear Daryl, replies Doug, first off, let me stress that this is me, Doug Murray, talking, not the rest of the folks at Marvel Comics, okay? Now, let me say that I agree with you. There were racial problems in Vietnam. There are racial problems now in issues 36, 37, and 38, and several yet to come were planned to make a statement on this. Let me also say that many of the racial problems were not in Vietnam itself. Blacks were drafted far more often than they should have been, and too many were sent to Nam. Once there, far too few were pro- properly promoted, and too many were badly used. Those are facts. Yet there were other problems. Too often, troops aware of the fact that they were being shafted by those at home took it out on their comrades, who were being equally shafted. The NAM was always meant to be a grunt's eye view of the war, and grunts see only the small picture. In this case, the man seeing the small picture happened to be black, and happened to be blaming things on wrong on the wrong people, something that everybody does once in a while, whatever his color. Racism is not just a white crime. There are black racists as well, and Williams is one of them. Just as Lieutenant Alarnik, remember him, was a white racist. There will be others. We're just getting into the most serious racial period in the NAM, 1969 and onward, and I guarantee that I will not ignore the issue. Okay? Thanks for caring and writing. Doug. And to add to that, um, Daryl has a point, Doug has a point, and Daryl kind of missed the point of the fact that there were other African-American characters all the way since the beginning of the... um, since the beginning of the the series 
Although these were the most heavy race relations issues. So that's maybe what he might have been referring to. And then the last one is Phil Hunt from Dorchester, Massachusetts, pointing out an error on page 37 regarding them depicting a 45 millimeter but showing the wrong pistol or something. Being very, very technical. Don Daly has a thanks where they are due department. He says, thanking every each and every one of you who's helped us on technical or historic Info would take up this whole letter page, so usually our, an appreciate, our appreciation goes unvoiced. But in the case of Vietnam veteran Ray Bose, we just got to mention our gratitude for his supplying us with, among other things, photo reference for the military payment currency shown him back in issue 33. Ray, as many of you are probably aware, put together Vietnam military lore, a look at 135 brave Americans for whom airfield camps and compounds were named posthumously. Want more info on that? Ray would be glad to tell you about it. Call him at 617-878-6714. Anyhow, to Ray and all the rest of you out there helping us make the NOM for the best it can be, thank you for your support. It's a better book because you care. Don Daly. NOM notes. Artie, artillery, Charlie, the enemy. Chinese fire drill is pandemonium. Humpin, walking with gear. Clicks, kilometers. Loach, observation helicopter. NVA, North Vietnamese Army. RT radio telephone and third growth dense triple canopy of foliage very thick and the next issue box says that football heroes the name of the next story however that will be issue 44 and next issue will actually be a fill-in by Chuck Dixon which we'll get to in our next episode but before we even leave before we finish up we have some ads and on the inside cover we have Iron Sword Wizards and Warriors 2 which shows Fabio holding a sword dressed as He-Man. It says, become the ultimate warrior in the ultimate war. And Fabio's hair is just blowing in the wind as the fires in the skies open up behind him, and it's so Fabio. Oh, Fabio, I can't believe it's not butter. Fabio. We have a Dungeons & Dragons sort of dungeon board game from TSR. We have... Highlight a role-playing action adventure piece, password feature, two-speed level game. Get all fired up for the adventure of a lifetime. There is no um, actual graphics. It's just a drawing of a looks like a female knight holding a shield, fighting a dragon. So I can't imagine that might not be a very good game. Not because it's a woman, but because these ads, when they didn't show actual gameplay, tended to mean that the game wasn't very good. We have chow down, dudes. You gotta taste your new cereal. It's Crunchy Ninja Nets and Ninja Marshalls. Calabonga, it's delicious. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cereal. New, which kind of looks like checks with marshmallows. Alright, I don't remember that. I don't think I... My sister and I were not allowed to have sugary cereals as kids, so we probably just didn't have this. Turn your house into a sewer with that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game that was the bane of my existence. We have um, Jerry Ross and Robert Crestall's complete Marvel collection special different prices ad again. Some of these ads are still repeating. Um, ooh, American Entertainment. Uh, Batman, intro new Robin. Robin lives, meet the controversial new Robin, Tim Drake. Once again, I don't see what was controversial about Tim Drake, but whoever... The Spider-Man Super Spidey Saga. Spider-Man becomes the most powerful character, and this is... Blisteringly hot. 
This, I think, is the Cosmic Spidey storyline, which Andy Leyland covered on Hey Kids Comics a, a couple of years ago. Wolverine Deluxe Special Number 1. There's a bunch of calendars and posters and comic books. Deluxe book. Uh, there's the Aliens Collection from Dark Horse. Actually have that in soft cover. You can buy t-shirts, including a, more, a Frank Miller Wolverine or a Spider, uh, Spider-Man by McFarlane. Uh, there's some leftover Batman movie uh, memorabilia. Not a lot of ads in this one, to be honest with you. We've got a Mile High Comics ad. We have bullpen bulletins. And this, I think this is the same as the last month because it's something about two incredible Hulk movies. Um, Peter David wrote a novel. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of a repeat of the last one. And... There's a McFarlane Hulk and the Incredible Savings on the subscription ad. And there is a, on the back, inside back cover, there's a Konami ad for uh, two Game Boy games. One called Motocross Maniacs and the other one Castlevania Adventure. On the back is the strap-in for full throttle action Sky Shark uh, Taito video game ad. And that is it for the NOM 42 in this episode of In Country. Come back in two weeks. I'm going to take a look at issue 43 of the NOM, as well as the usual historical context letters and ads. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. You never learn. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find the You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics, the NOM. The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Someone's waiting just for you. Painted pony, let the spinning wheel fly.